Shahid Romi is currently a lecturer at Harvard University. He's a cultural and comparative historical sociologist with research on international humanitarian organizations and movements, transnational advocacy, and political culture. His research looks at the role of religion and cultural beliefs in creating society, organizations, and movements, and in shaping the production of social knowledge. Shai is currently co-authoring a book called Moral Mindfields, How Sociologists Debate Good Science, which is under advanced contract with the University of Chicago Press. And that's the publication that we'll be speaking about today. Hello, Shai, and welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. So I know that a lot of your work has been around the area of sociological facts and uh, data and how exactly we look at, um, you know, sociology as a science, right? And what good science really is, um, you know, in like in this field. But before we get into that, can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your background and what it is about sociology that you find interesting as an area of research? Yeah, so I uh, got my PhD in uh, 2016 from Yale University in sociology. What drew me to sociology, I think, is the breadth of this field in a sense that we cover everything from, you know, organizations, to social movements, to individual interpersonal interaction, to um, religion, and so on. And also, there are so many methodologies to choose from because sociologists are both quantitative and qualitative. And I, I thought that many of the um, social issues that might seem obvious at first sight can actually be unpacked and you know experienced and, and understood in their complexity using these tools. Uh, now, my personal area is in humanitarian organizations, and that's that's what I did my PhD on. And I wanted to know how is it that so much of international humanitarian work is actually done not by governments and not necessarily by the UN, but by volunteer organizations organizations that survive based on charity and philanthropy and so on. That was kind of my main draw, right? And I, I did a lot of archival work around that. And so, and since I finished my PhD, I teach at Harvard and I teach courses on humanitarian organizations and on philanthropy and on religion. So uh, I'm also able to kind of translate my research into actual teaching um, uh, modules. Right. Yeah, I see. And, uh, you know, I think to go a little bit into, you know, like your research itself, right? Um, You're currently co-authoring a book called Moral Minefields, How Sociologists Debate Good Science. Um, You know, and of course, as, as the title suggests, it speaks about, you know, sociology as a science, right? Where you have these facts and you, you know, and like where you're trying to Um, make sense of it. So, you know, I think I'd like to ask you a little bit as to what exactly the scope of science is, you know, in in a field of research like this and how exactly facts are, you know, decided upon and constructed and debated upon by uh, the experts. Mm -hmm. So uh, Moral Minefields is a book that I'm currently co-authoring with Samuel Stabler, CUNY uh, Hunter College. 
And this book basically asks what sort of strategies do researchers have when they encounter a problem that's considered immoral to research, right? So for example, for a long time throughout uh, the history of sociology, there was an assumption that religion is, is declining in society, that, you know, with the advent of science and technology, the assumption was that people just wouldn't need religion to answer existential questions and that religious participation would uh, decline. At some point in the 90s in America, there was a great deal of pushback about this assumption because what it says basically is that people who, you know, implicitly, the people who are religious are not modern, right? Or um, kind of lacking in some respects. And since then, saying anything about religious trends and so on, is it declining, is it increasing and so on, in the United States has been very a very charged topic, right? Because whatever you say, you might be interpreted as saying something is either positive or negative about not just religion, but about religious people. And if you're thinking about the United States, it's a, a you know, highly religious country with by far the highest uh, participation rates in the West. So our book looks at how researchers handle these sort of controversies, right? When there's something that you want to do research on, but at the same time has a lot of sensitivity built into it because of its history, because of its public policy implications and so on. And we look at several different debates. We're looking at demographic debates over fertility. We look at debates over the relationship between race and genetics. We look at debates over globalization, whether it's a good thing, it's a bad thing, it's happening, it's not happening. And we offer a, a general framework to help research in those, in those areas to understand better what the stakes are and how to move past them. Definitely, right. I think, you know, it's uh, really interesting that you bring up, you know, those examples, because I can actually think of a couple of, um, you know, modern day examples that we have. I think one big example being uh, a lot of the anti-vaccination protests and the anti-mask protests in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, right, that you see, I think, especially in, um, you know, in like the USA, uh, you know, that was especially there last year, right. And, you know, the interesting thing about, um, you know, such protests is that you can't really argue uh, with protesters using scientific facts. You know, it's like they come with one area of knowledge, with one opinion, and you are arguing with another opinion. So, you know, I think like when we study an area like sociology, right, you know, can you tell us a little bit about um, how facts are constructed, how they are built? and what the areas of knowledge are, what the different disciplines are, and, you know, just in general, how, um, you know, the experts go about deciding facts. Yeah, so the fact that something is morally charged doesn't mean that it's less factual, you know, and you brought up the vaccines, sure. I mean, if I'm telling you that the COVID vaccine is, vaccines are highly effective and are extremely important for public health, I'm saying a fact, but I'm also like implicitly telling you, you should go get vaccinated, right? The fact that this has a normative edge doesn't make what I said about vaccines less real, right? Which means that the fact that the debate is very highly charged doesn't reduce anything from the factual basis of uh, the claims being made. Now, the debates that we look at, you know, we have actually sides that are, you know, 
both sides of the debate are backed by facts, right? To name one example, uh, there's a, been a longstanding debate in uh, sociologists of public health and public health uh, authorities about the value of breastfeeding, where public health officials have long said, you know, it is both in terms of health and in terms of um, economics, better for children to be breastfed. And conversely, there is a group of sociologists of gender and work who are pointing out to the fact that mothers who uh, breastfeed often get penalized for that in the workplace, right? Because they need to take, often they need to take longer time off and then, or come back as part-time get paid less, have their promotion um, deferred, and so on. Now, both, both sides, in a sense, are quote-unquote right. But at the same time, there's a question of value. What is more important and what's a way to either come to a, some sort of a compromise about the, you know, the value of breastfeeding versus the value of women's ability to make a living? So these, this is just one of the many examples we look at in the book where in a way, the facts are there right, on all sides, but the question is really what's, what uh, do sociologists think is more valuable and is more uh, worthy of consideration? Yeah, I see. In fact, I think this reminds me of a, a course I had taken in college, which was on critical theory, where we looked at a lot of these scholars. We looked at Marx, uh, Gramsci, a lot of structuralists and, you know, um, and scholars from the movements that came after it, right? And the interesting thing is when you look at structuralism as a movement, it says that society can be explained, you know, it's like a clock that has certain parts and you break it apart and you can see how society functions. But, uh, you know, in the movements following it, people said that it actually isn't that simple. You have to look at power and a lot of other aspects that tie into it, uh, right? And I think, of course, that plays a very crucial role in deciding um, you know, how facts are decided, what is chosen, what is not chosen, who gets to narrate facts, what is left out. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm sure that like in addition to, you know, the whole field of of, um, of like critical theory, right, we have a lot of scholars who've, uh, you know, sort of been debating these things. So have you had a chance to look at existing literature and, uh, you know, and like similar work that's been done in the area? And like, what have you, you know, um, like found out in in, in that place. Yes, we do absolutely look at historical debates because some of the de debates have been going on for a very, very long time. One of the more interesting debates, I think, is about the origins and nature of race-based inequality in the United States, where, you know, this, this goes back to the, to the 19th century, where um, Herbert Spencer, one of the earliest sociologists, was disseminating theories that had to do with innate abilities or inabilities of certain groups to, quote unquote, make it in modern society, to adapt to modern society, to thrive in modern society, which then if you look at various social groups, then your, your explanation for poverty is going to be not that there's discrimination or certain groups' histories left them in, in severe poverty, but actually, oh, they're just ill-adapted to um, modern life. A lot has happened since that 19th century, but what we show in the, um, the chapter dealing with this is that in many ways, those sort of assumptions continue to be circulated, but also uh, pushed back against 
by various uh, authors as early as the, uh, the 1930s already, where researchers were um, debating basically the, the facts, both on the ground and also about the academic discourse and its suitability to explain the very complex reality of race, race relations in the United States. So that's something that really takes us back to basically to the roots of um, U.S. sociology. Right, right, certainly. And you know, I'm sure that even when we discuss such a topic, right, even among experts, I'm sure that there are area, you know, like disagreement and stuff. So, you know, I think given the same facts, what might the reasons be for any sort of, you know, like conflict or arguments between experts of the field themselves? Mm-hmm. Well, um, what we try to show in the book is that even though the facts are there, different sociologists will have different perceptions of how sociology should contribute to the common good, right? With some, you know, some suggesting that sociology should uh, basically offer data, you know, as objectively as possible. Others believing that sociologists should empower disadvantaged groups in society, uh, give them voice, Others believing that we should work on creating innovative theory, right? Develop social theory, kind of understand better, kind of on an abstract level, the working of society. So there are many different ways in which people perceive sociology as a valuable science, as a a science that actually contributes to everyone's uh, welfare. And uh, what we show is that many of our big historical debates revolve around that um, much more than about the actual factual question. It's, uh, it's much more about do we want to, you know, going back to the, the breastfeeding controversy, do we envision sociology as a science that contributes to equality, to social equality? And then the question of women's wages becomes particularly important, right? Do we want to, conversely, do we think of sociology as a science that, you know, reduces public costs, right, you know, makes society more efficient and so on, and then perhaps uh, advocating for breastfeeding and in a way neoliberalizing kind of childcare, making it the parents, particularly the mother's responsibility, is, would be the aspect that would be much more valuable for a scholar. Right, so these these very different ways of thinking about social problems also generate a great deal of contention between the scholars who do research on those substantive fields, and of course, and you know we have many other examples I can talk about in the book. Right, certainly, and I think one common um, you know question that comes up, uh, especially in a field like sociology, right, is that. Um, you know, once you've got all this information, once you've got this data, what exactly do you do with it? And I think a very logical sort of response that a lot of people give is that, you know, we use it to create change, to drive change. And that's why it's extremely important that sociologists and, uh, you know, and lawmakers, you know, and like policymakers work together, right? So in that sense, um, you know, over the course of your research, have you found that there are certain challenges to bringing theory to practice? And can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So sociologist Pierre Bourdieu once uh, noted that the thing that's tricky about sociology is that it's very tightly linked to the political field, 
in a sense that many of the scientific findings that you will have in your sociological research will actually correspond to a political position, right? So for example, if I'm I'm a researcher of inequality, I find out that a government program to, I don't know, to get people from welfare to work is just not working and is actually exacerbating poverty. When I publish that and, you know, I, I have some policy recommendations there, whether or not I meant it, that's going to be read as, a, as taking a, a, a political stance, right? Even if you had no, you're, even if you yourself are saying, oh, no, no, I'm not, I wouldn't think of taking, talking about politics, I'm just offering you the data, yeah. right? It would be extremely naive <laughs> to say something like that, right? And that means that, that many of our research findings are also need to be very carefully framed, right? We need to think very carefully about how to, how to communicate them, how to present them. Uh, there are many, many pitfalls that could happen, like assuming that we want the policy, actual policy change to occur. I think one of the good things to do is to work more closely with policymakers and to understand what the stakes are. And in that sense, what the language that's most useful to communicating your findings in a way that will actually help uh, avoid some of those pitfalls. Uh, and we get into that a little bit in the, in the conclusion of the book too. Certainly, yes. And, um, you know, I think, in fact, whenever we talk about facts and data, right, I think, um, you know, that humans, essentially, we are pattern-seeking animals, you know, so when we're trying to come up with a theory, when we're trying to make sense of knowledge, then, of course, we will look for facts that fit in, you know, uh, to patterns that sort of align to, you know, um, to give us something. And we tend to neglect uh, those facts or, or those pieces of data that, um, come up as anomalies, you know, in, in that sense. So, yeah, you know, I think I'd just like to ask you a little bit about, you know, how exactly this plays into the idea of what good science is, you know, because while we want to have a pattern, how do we make sense of all the data and how do our inclinations and, and our biases lead us to perceive data? You know, I think that's something I'm a little bit, um, I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. So one of the one of the big errors I think that we, you know, we've learned from historically had to do with the question of secularization that we, that we talked about earlier, right? Where for many years, there was just a general paradigm preconception that here are the processes that happen as we get more modern, right? We move into city, we move away from all communities into cities we become more rational, we become more, we, we live in smaller family units and so on and so forth, and we become more secular. And I think that's what caused that philosopher Thomas Kuhn wrote, wrote about exactly this, right, where any sort of evidence to the contrary gets interpreted as just an anomaly, right, as just, so for example, in the 80s, there was a big revival in uh, evangelical um, American Christianity, and for like at least in some circles the the idea was that oh well yeah but it doesn't really mean it's just a bump kind of on the general trend down right and that's i think that leads to many errors that actually have policy implications later on right because if you're if you believe that society is just moving in this very specific direction 
and you're interpreting every anomaly, you know, every, every piece of evidence that contradicts that as an anomaly, you're also going to create public policy that is geared toward what you believe rather than social reality on the ground. So I think that is at least one major area of, you know, that's been extremely challenging since the beginning of the sociology, really. Right, yeah. And, you know, I think uh, to tie back into the whole theme of, um, you know, politics and how politics sort of plays into the way that we understand, uh, you know, a lot of these facts in sociology, right? Um, Do you think that there is the possibility or the scope for us to frame our data and our findings objectively, or will there always be a right-leaning and a left-leaning answer? And if we are to, um, you know, strive for such objectivity, to strive for such neutrality, then how do we go about doing it? And how do we go about recognizing the inclinations and biases that uh, one may have? Yeah, Yeah, it's a big, important question uh, that's being hotly debated right now you know, by, by philosophers of science. So I think it's, it's a very complicated question to answer. Perhaps the aim isn't all, you know, realistically isn't to be 100% objective, but uh, aware of the biases, right? Aware and, and cognizant and, and um, acknowledging of the various biases. So for example, if I'm an ethnographer, and I'm doing research on a site where people are experiencing poverty. And I, I have, you know, I have a stance on that. But being aware of the fact that I am potentially biased and then doing the best I can not, to, not only to acknowledge that, but also to, um, to express that in writing. So whoever reads my findings will also understand that I'm, I have to stand somewhere, right? You know, I do have a position. Um, I think that's one way. The same with quantitative studies, being as transparent as possible about how the questions were, this is a survey, how the questions were asked, what sort of assumptions were being made about in what state people are when they're responding and so on. I think it's, it's crucial because, you know, especially in the area of, uh, you know, the sociology of religion, even a tiny difference in the way you ask the question can actually make a huge difference. So for example, a set of surveys, UK, when they ask people, uh, they ask people about their religious affiliation. And when they ask people, what is your religious affiliation? They got a much larger share of the population saying that they're Christian compared to if they asked, do you belong to, uh, to an organized religion, which you got, they got lower response to Christianity. Uh, because the second way they asked it was, in a way, insinuated that not belonging is even an option, right? Whereas the first one insinuated that you belong to a religious faith, uh, and it's possible that your religion is none, quote-unquote. But that leaves you much less room to think about, like, oh, it's possible that I don't belong to any of these, right? So uh, even those minute differences in asking which often emanate from the whoever designed the assumption that whoever designed the research has can make such important differences. So I think the more transparency, more direct acknowledgement of uh, potential biases is really the, the, uh, an important step to um, approaching objectivity. Certainly, yes. And I think to your point of language, right, I think it's 
not just the type of words we use, but also um, the language itself. Because if we are conducting interviews in different parts of the world with different communities in other languages, then I think, and you know, if our final um, research, if our book or our publication, uh, you know, is in English, right? Then a lot of what has been said, I think, is definitely lost in translation. So, um, you know, like, can you tell us a little bit about the weaknesses in that sense of, you know, of language and how exactly the vocabulary that we have, I think, is, um, you know, not just reflective of our knowledge, but it sort of contains the knowledge, right? So what exactly is that link between vocabulary and language and the knowledge and what we can represent, you know? Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, I will say as, as a non-native English speaker, there are many ideas that you, you can't quite pinpoint in English, which you can express in my native uh, language. And then I'm imagining a non-native speaker of Hebrew, you know, doing interviews here and thinking they're getting something, but they're actually perhaps missing a kind of an important nuance. And um, it, like in recent years, uh, there's been a stronger push to include sociological theory that's not from the West. And um, the Australian sociologist Raywin Connell did a great deal of work on that. And there's always the problem, right? So, for example, uh, the classic like, social theorist Alaf Ghani, no matter what you're going to be reading Alaf Ghani, if you're an, an American uh, researcher, you're going to be reading probably an English translation and probably in the in a Western context, right? Which is gonna change completely the way you're you're perceiving and you're hearing this this specific theory. So yeah, that does pose a barrier. Another thing actually with translation is that sometimes when we read theory from uh from the non-West, it comes through the eyes of a translator who chose specific parts of you know someone's entire life work to translate and that means that there is there was some sort of editorial thinking about so what would what is more most current what is most interesting for today's context which can be helpful but it can be you can also be losing a lot of depth and a lot of uh, context in that uh, transition so absolutely language is a very very central way in which our knowledge is, of sociology is formed Definitely, yes. And in fact, I think something to also keep in mind, right, is that when, um, you know, you're, you're studying other groups, other societies, then it's typically a Western, um, you know, or, or a Caucasian group per se, right, that is studying, uh, you know, um, like a non-Western uh, society. And I think when that happens, because we have histories of colonialism and we have a lot of this baggage that we're carrying, uh, there is always going to be this power dynamic between um, the researcher and the subject in that sense, right? Which I think can definitely affect, uh, you know, the, the research outcomes as well. So, you know, like when you're studying, uh, you know, a subject like sociology, I think, what are some ways in which we can perhaps reduce or, um, you know, dampen uh, the effect of this power dynamic? Oh, there's, there's always some level of power dynamic because like it or not, right, you are, you know, and as, as, as much as you try to moderate it, you are still the person who's doing the writing, right? And you're the one who's making the choices of um, re how to represent 
your research subjects. I can tell you that discipline that's neighboring to us, cultural anthropology, has developed a lot of tools in trying to address this power dynamic and including, say, having an ethnography and actually having some of the subjects actually write parts of the story or to have um, subjects read your text and comment on it. And then like the, you, you would incorporate their comments into your text and so on and so forth. So, so, so yeah, so there are tools out there to um, address this. Another thing that's, um, and this, this gets back a little bit to the, your, your previous question about language. There are interesting examples in the past of people who, you know, representing populations that used to be studied, actually going and studying the population that they, that used to study them. So for example, you, you mentioned colonialism, right? So in India, for example, there was a long tradition of anthropologists kind of showing up from uh, the, the UK, from America, writing about what they're seeing and then kind of reporting it back to, to the West. So interestingly, we read in my theory uh, course, a book on, by, uh, Pandita Ramabai Saravasti, an Indian sociologist from uh, late 19th and early 20th um, century, who actually traveled to the U.S. and then wrote a book kind of about what she's seeing, what she's observing about American society. And this book was intended to be read by Indian women, right? So to kind of get them also thinking about Indian society. So so that this is an example of a you know a great example of in a way the power balance between east and west kind of being challenged right because suddenly the person who would ostensibly be the studied actually is going and studying the uh western population definitely and i think something else that in fact affects research outcomes is the body that's funding the research and you know, who these gatekeepers of knowledge are, right? Because I would expect that when you have these large bodies, when you have these large Ivy League institutes and, you know, and the like, right? You know, like your Cambridge, your Oxford and your Yale, when you have them giving out the money and giving the funding, then of course there are certain, um, you know, uh, norms and restrictions, right? That come in terms of what your research can cover and what it cannot. Um, right. And I think, you know, in that sense, of course, it, it plays a role and it influences, um, you know, the the path that that the research takes. Uh, so can you maybe, you know, like um, tell us a, um, a, a little bit about how exactly, uh, you know, um, the sources of funding can or may have an influence on um, the research that's being done? Yeah. So, you know, funding agencies of, you know, normally have some priorities that they that they have very explicitly on their website they have normally um some sort of document that spells out kind of generally what their re uh, kind of research agenda is now in the us i can tell you that that's very um it, you know in a way understandably right many organizations that give the big money are looking to solve uh, us social problems right poverty, crime, public health, and the likes. At, you know, at a big research university, there will also be uh, funding normally to do research abroad, like for Americans abroad, 
and to bring people from other parts of the world to the university with the hope to generate research, research ties and so on. But, you know, there's no comparison in the size of the um, programs and the amount of uh, funding available, especially if you, when, once you move away from the Ivy League and the big, big um, state research universities. Certainly, yes. And I think to the point of, um, you know, cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity, uh, it reminds me of an interesting example that has been brought uh, about, you know, since school, especially in India, because we've learned about this one practice called Sati, which, um, you know, briefly is a practice where um, a lot of, of like these women, you know, from like upper caste Hindu households, uh, once their husband is dead, they are expected to throw themselves, you know, into you know, like the funeral pyre and take their own lives along with their husband's life. And, you know, it's it's a method of gatekeeping, right? Like within, you know, like one's own caste so that she doesn't, um, you know, serve as a threat to the caste group being, um, you know, uh, like um, like polluted, if, if I may say so. Uh, right. And, you know, the thing is, it's only since the British came. And of course, there were a number of Indian activists as well. But, you know, I think like British intervention definitely played a role in, you know, in eradicating such, you know, um, like social evils of the time, right? And I think, you know, um, so if you look at it from, you know, like a sociological lens, from, you know, like an anthropological, you know, like lens, right? I think, uh, you know, there are some practices which no matter how culturally important they are, you know, if you look at it from an ethical standpoint, from a moral standpoint, from a simple humane and a human rights standpoint, it, you know, it's, um, it's a violation, right? And I think, you know, that's where you really begin to draw the line. And, um, you know, I think along those lines, but there are a lot of areas which are not as clear cut in which we cannot say that, you know, an outsider has the right to come in and and impose their ideals and their, um, you know, ideas and what is right and wrong on an external community. So, you know, how exactly have, you know, experts of the field, you know, like in sociology, you know, like like dealt with like these questions of of morality and, um, and what is right and what is wrong? Yeah, so that's a great example. It's a great, it's a, it's a very, very long discussion in, um, but primarily in anthropology. There, there are also sociologists involved, but it's, it's been a big question for anthropologists for many years. To what extent can I, as an outsider, look at another society and say, you know what, that specific practice is wrong. You know, that that's just unacceptable universally for all. The more uh, recent example have been conversations of uh, female genital mutilation in um, certain societies where, you know, the big question is, can an outsider say, you know, no matter what the beliefs behind it, they need, that needs to change, that needs to stop, right? So so I'm, um, over the years, I mean, the conceptions have just shifted about how much can uh, outsiders say, you know, historically for a very long time, the, the perception was, well, if this practice developed in this society kind of organically, then it must be, must be okay, right? It must be kind of organic to that society. Then there was, a, you know, later in the 20th century, there was a big shift to the other side and saying like, no, women's rights need to be protected everywhere. Uh, and I think in more uh, recent decades, there have been a more moderate, kind of careful approach. Um, so I know this in part because of my research on uh, humanitarian organizations, right? But there's much more emphasis on having the conversation 
with and conversations with women in the specific context, finding tools to understand, you know, what do uh, what do they want? What do they um, what would they feel comfortable with? Because you know whether the Western observer likes it or not, different societies, you know, members of different societies will tell them that they value things that they themselves don't, right? So, or they themselves might think of as abhorrent. It's a very, very long um, discussion and a huge topic and something that people are still grappling with, really. Definitely, it's uh, interesting, it definitely is. And I think, you know, one way that we might go about uh, increasing such cultural awareness perhaps is, you know, um, an often proposed solution is, you know, uh, to hire and to have people of color women and such minority groups, you know, um, sort of studying their own communities and going back and thinking critically about a lot of the practices that they are embedded in, right? I think in that sense, you're not, you know, bringing about an outsider sort of view, you know, you're thinking about it, um, you know, from a lived experience in a critical way. And I think that's, you know, something really important that, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of speaks about like the power of, of sociology as well, right, as, as a subject. Um, so yeah, I think the like the final question that I would like to sort of bring about uh, regarding your book again is how exactly you went about your method um, of research, what literature you looked at, and you know um, yeah, and just how the entire research process sort of rolled out. So both my previous book and this and the current book are almost entirely uh, archival, and so so we look we look historically at how. What, what the rationales around certain policy ideas and certain certain scientific innovations looked like at the time. My first book look at, looked at uh, humanitarian NGO ethics, and it looked, you know, so I basically spent a lot of uh, you know, a lot of time at the archives of the International Committee of the Red Cross, several other humanitarian NGOs, looking at what the uh, internal conversations were really about when they were thinking thinking how to design their policies, how to think through um, the various ethical challenges that NGO, uh, NGO work creates. Um, now, my, the current book, we're looking at historical debates in uh, sociology, and we're, we're focusing on what has been published, because our point is that there's, you know, conversation, it's not that difficult to, or surprising to say, oh, when people talk you know, informally about research. Sure, there are lots of opinions around, but it is much more interesting to us to show that in the final product of research, right, that the publication, there is a great deal of ethical language planted and strategized in order to highlight why this research is morally worthwhile. And um, so we're primarily going over several big debates very carefully kind of categorizing the various framing techniques as based on the, the, the repertoire of justification that they're using. That's the main um, methodology. I will say that in other studies, I've also done interviews and I'm working on a study now that also uses interviews in a different context. So, you know, broadly speaking, I'm a, I use qualitative sociological methodological tool, toolkit um, in my research. I see. I see. Great. Yeah. So, you know, um, over the course of your research, has there been anything that has 
surprised you or you know like stood out to you that you thought is uh, interesting or noticeable yeah so um when i was working on my first book that was looking at humanitarian organizational policy i actually started the research without thinking that religion is going to matter very much right and to my surprise as i was looking at the personal files of people who really founded the red cross movement in the 1850s and 60s i noticed that much of the rationale much of the way they were thinking about what's you know why should we uh, establish kind of a sector of volunteer organizations that are going to do humanitarian work um i was just struck by how much of that reasoning was was religious right was looking toward religious ethics in, in order to make sense of an organizational issue which is how you know how will these organizations be run what's going to be their um you know internal um policy and so on and that genuinely surprised me i was not expecting that and it ended up being the focus of my uh first book which is about kind of how specific types of religious thinking actually created the ethical codes that still that still predominate the humanitarian aid world today right uh so that's at least that that's i think for in my career so far that has been the biggest kind of surprise right wow i see um that is definitely interesting and with that last question uh, you know i think our interview comes to an end here because unfortunately we are uh, out of time so yeah so i'm going to have to call it a wrap but it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you today shai so thank you so much for taking out the time today okay thank you enjoyed this episode then please do consider subscribing and sharing it along apart from anchor which is our main hosting platform you can catch us on breaker google podcast pocket cast radio republic and spotify if you are on twitter then be sure to follow the handle research down for further updates or just to get in touch <laughs>